Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to part two of our interview with Edgar Schein, distinguished professor emeritus of MIT, an author of many seminal books in the field of organizational development. In part one, Ed discussed assumptions about white male culture in the U.S. Now in part two, we continue that discussion and explore the three and a half day white men's caucus as a learning path and how this intersects with Ed's concepts of humble inquiry and the need for level two relationships at work. You actually can't get the job done unless you build those relationships. That's the huge conclusion that I'm reaching, that we have to push over and over again. A lot of kind of work in today's society cannot get done transactionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, my son Peter made an observation that I think is very deep. He said anything that can be done transactionally will eventually be done by robots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you need the humans for is the heart. Mm-hmm. You don't need the humans for the transaction. The robot can be taught to do that. Isn't that a profound message? That is great. I mean, it's exciting, actually, to hear you talk about that because we won't be successful in the future unless we find a way to relate at a heart level that's appropriate to get work done and to be able to have the open communication, the trust. And some of that is stepping out to the edge of this white male culture box. And I think one of the things that white men learn is they realize they do have a culture and that other people have been assimilating to that culture too, and that it's not bad. It has upsides, and if strength overused is a weakness. So I love working with white guys around diversity because they discover through discovering this cultural box that we've been talking about, they actually get some freedom to step outside of it when it serves them better. And therein is a self-interest for for white men around diversity. It's like, oh, I'm not just helping other people with their issues around this. I'm actually participating in my own freedom, my own emancipation of a box I've been in that is going to, maybe I can bring more of my humanness into interactions. I can bring rationality and emotion. I can be active, action-oriented and reflective. I can say, ask for help. I can be more connecting and not just through a status and rank orientation. And that, that's a lot of freedom for us to be more human. The place where I, I see the most interesting examples of that is in the art world which, of course, is is more hard to start with. For example, there is a principle in the theater world that during rehearsals, the director may impose on the whole company the rule that as we're going through the script, 
if anyone, any actor or anyone from the stage crew or the writer, if anyone has a suggestion of a different way to do it, we must process it. No one's idea is any less than anybody's in that world. Another example is from the improv theater world where the yes but versus yes and uh-huh. came from, that the principle that leads to the yes and is that when a pair of people are doing the improv work, the principle is one person should say something to the second person that enables the second person to get the laugh. And then they will reciprocate. But that it's never about getting the laugh yourself. It's about setting up the situation for the other guy to succeed. I think that's profound that we haven't figured out except in this more theater open kind of world where we also see more diversity. They're more open, not just to different kinds of people within the white male culture, but they're genuinely more open to other cultures that uh, that don't believe in these five or six or seven basic assumptions that we've identified. Yeah, and I think that in the improvisational world, people put out offers and then they, they accept each other's offers. And that's usually not something people typically ignore each other's offers. And so it's the the same thing that Keith Johnstone wrote about improv is the acceptance of each other's offers is actually exact same research that Gottman did about prime relationships, accepting each other's bids. And that he's the one that could predict marriages would last within watching a couple for 15 seconds, 15 years later. He was checking to see if they were in contempt or they were accepting each other's bids. So I think that process of being a yes and a yes to each other, I think it relates to your concept of humble inquiry. The humble inquiry concept came out of trying to analyze the helping process in this kind of a culture. It turns out that if you really analyze this U.S. culture, helping is something that is rare because in this individual competitive world, you're not supposed to need help. You're supposed to know everything already. So we don't have a lot of examples of learning how to ask for help because it's bad to do so in the first place. And we have a lot of examples of where offered help, which in this book I'm calling Telling, let me tell you how to do something, turns out to be something I resent. Because if you try to tell me something, that implies that I don't already know it. So the helping relationship is fraught with difficulty, and it all results from the assumption that needing help and giving help is unnatural. It's not a normal thing to want help and to give help. So that led to the Humble Inquiry book notion that we have to learn not to be so telling, but to listen carefully for when people actually are asking for help, even if it's not very blunt, or learning 
how to figure out what it is that people really need. That process of learning to listen and learning to inquire is missing in this kind of a culture. The normal thing is to figure out what the situation needs and tell everybody or else keep silent. Which I think is a perfect illustration of rugged individualism, taking out the uncertainty, assuming you know it, and taking action by telling. And it kind of kills partnership. I think it kind of stops the relationship right there. If I'm telling you something and you really want to be in partnership and want me to be humble and, and hear your wisdom, I'm not even knowing that you want that. That's right. It kills not only partnership in the sense of building a relationship, but it can also very easily kill again the action. I was standing outside my house once when a woman drove up and asked me, how do I get to Massachusetts Avenue? This was in in Cambridge. And the reality was that she was about a mile and a half away from that avenue, and she would have to make two or three fairly complicated turns to get there. So for maybe the wrong reason, nevertheless, I asked her, where are you trying to get? She said, well, I'm trying to get into downtown Boston. And I said, well, do you realize that this big road that you're right next to is the artery into Boston. And she said, oh, they told me to get into Boston, you have to take Massachusetts Avenue. (laughs) And I said, well, you don't really have to. You just get right onto this artery and it goes into Boston. Now, what happened there is that she misdiagnosed her own need for help. She had the wrong problem. And I learned later as a consultant that that's almost 100% the case, Uh that the person who asks for help has done a very superficial job or has actually been misled in what problem he or she's supposed to solve, and that the best help I can give is humble inquiry. Where are you trying to get? What are you trying to do? Why is this a problem for you? And in one of my books, Humble Consulting, I have 20 or so cases where in each case, the problem that was begun by the client did not turn out to be the real problem, and the help occurred through a joint inquiry of what's really the problem here. And my role was to be a humble inquirer and listen carefully to what the other person was saying. Well, I'm just thinking as you're talking, Ed, about an example that happens continuously in the diversity partnerships realm where a white male will turn to a woman or a person of color and follow his cultural direct, his assumptions and say, what are the three things you want me to do differently to support you? And that's like, straight out of the action over reflection, take out the uncertainty, just tell me what to do. And he's actually got some positive, really honest intent to help based on his cultural values. And what he doesn't think of, because I think that's a level one question, what rules do you want me to follow or what do you want me to fix? 
He doesn't think to ask a question outside of the white male box, which is, what's it like to be you? What's it like to be you in this company? And that when I see men do that, I actually prompt that question sometimes in a fishbowl dialogue when we're practicing. It opens up a whole nother world. Those assumptions and things, it's a form of humble inquiry, I think, that what's it like to be you? It just creates connection and opens the world up for them to partner in a different way. Yeah, exactly. It shows curiosity and interest in the other person, whereas the tell me what to do is, first of all, not a question. It's a, it's a, an order, and it puts the other person into an immediate subordinate role. It reminds the person that I'm the boss and you're the subordinate, whereas your other question, what's it like to be you, is an attempt to say, you know, we're equal. I've experienced, you have experienced. I'd like to learn a little more about your experience. Yeah. So it's a drastically different social message, mm-hmm. which of those questions you use. You could even imagine another kind of question, which might be in what areas of your work would you prefer to be different where you know that hopefully she'll tell you or he'll tell you what you're doing wrong as a boss, but you don't want to lock in the question and say, I'm doing something wrong, obviously. You Uh tell me what I'm doing wrong, which Uh I would think freezes the person immediately emotionally, knowing that it's a very risky thing to answer that question. Because the real feeling might be you're an asshole, but I know I can't say that. <laughs> and you wouldn't understand what I meant anyway. <laughs> no, it's powerful, the, the thinking and the assumptions that go behind different questions that are asked automatically or more consciously. It makes a big difference. I wanted to ask you what WMFDP and FDP Global, we, we focus on insiders understanding their insiderness. And being able to, usually the burden for understanding inclusion dynamics falls on outsiders to educate all the insiders, which is an exhausting task. So it's really about insiders intervening with each other to help us understand our insiderness, our blind spots, and and then intervene in situations where it's non-inclusive. I know you read about the Whiteman's Caucus in the my Four Days to Change book, and I just wondered if you had any comments about that whole process of going through that kind of a four-day reflection for white men. Well, the first point is to go back to the assumption that in the white man's culture, reflection is a waste of time. So the first thing is to even get people to commit to four days of doing something differently. The second thing that occurs to me that I learned in my days in human relations training in the T group is that the action orientation undermines reflection in its own, but even more so, analysis of what we actually do, process analysis. So what we learned in the T-groups is how much there is to learn, not just from what happened, but what were the actual processes that led up to what happened, what were some of the reactions of people to that, let's say somebody really burst out in an angry exchange at somebody else. 
and the facilitator says, let's stop and look at that. What happened here, and why did it happen, and what feelings surrounded it? So I became acutely aware that process analysis is the key to getting an understanding of what goes on inside us and what goes on in other people. And then this was reinforced in a second set of experiences around William Isaac's concept of dialogue, where the rule is you sit around the campfire, but you don't talk face to face, you talk to the campfire, and that allows you to think rather than respond. So if I said to the campfire, I don't know why you said that, and it really bothers me that you said that. In the normal discourse, that would invite you to explain yourself. In a dialogue, you might hear that and actually ask yourself, yeah, why did I say that? <laughs> and that's a profoundly different way of learning, is when you're confronted not to react because you only set it to the fire, really, even though I felt it as coming at me. But I can say, what's going on here? What, why am I upset by what he said? And you can be thinking about the same thing. So this combination of process analysis and dialogic thinking together is hugely informative of getting at our own assumptions and values. And what impressed me is that you do that. And it also impressed me that it takes four days to get people to be good at it, that this doesn't happen instantly because we're so overtrained to act and not reflect and always respond. Yeah, well, some of the mindsets that we introduce in that process is it's not that your view of the world is wrong, it's, in, it's more likely incomplete. So that's the campfire. Let's just be an inquiry and about what am I incomplete about or what am I not seeing versus whether something's right or wrong. And I think the other concept of strength overused is a weakness. That's another one of our mindsets so that we're not telling you your culture is bad if you overuse it, it might get limiting for you. So those are just two examples of the mindsets I think are similar to that, that just encourage permission to reflect, permission to be in messy uncertainty with each other. And there's a deeper implication that we are not completely formed personalities at any stage of our lives, that as Carl Jung really pointed out very clearly is it that we all are all of the properties of a humanity, of a human, but that we let some of those, like extroversion or introversion, dominate our daily life. But the most important thing for an extrovert to learn is what it's like to be introverted and what it's like for someone who's always rational to know what it's like to be emotional because they are that, whether they realize it or not. <laughs> it's just that they underuse the sh what Jung would call the shadow parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And many of the personal therapeutic approaches are really designed specifically to find out what your own shadow is 
and see whether if you got in touch with it, you would actually be a more competent human being. Yeah, and that reminds me of the shadow side of white male culture, if you would, is that sitting in messiness, sitting in reflection, sitting with lots of levels of emotion, being totally in the present moment instead of future-focused or past-focused and more connected than you typically are. And what is that like? What opens up? And so sometimes that type of beingness gets projected onto women as too edgy or too emotional or people of colors too passionate or whatever and yet those are parts of ourselves that we can wake up and and bring into our lives and claim as humans because it does make us feel better i mean the important thing about these well let's call them cultural islands when you take people away for four days you're creating a cultural island which makes it legitimate collectively to take some time to talk about culture that's inside us. When you do that, you do two things which I, I think are critical. You become more empathic to other people, but you maybe become more empathic to yourself. You begin to realize that some of what you do is pretty dumb but instead of blaming yourself and saying, I'll never do that again, you might say, well, I'm beginning to understand why I do that. And that's me too. And if I understand why I do it, then I'll have a better choice of when I do it the next time. The concept of choice seems to me very important in these programs that after four days, people have many more choices of who to be and what to do than when they came in. And they're not going to be a different person overnight, but they're going to have a choice of when and how I do things differently because I've gotten acquainted with the culture inside myself. I think of personality, by the way, as being just the layers of culture of my experience. First, the family culture created a set of traits and then the school culture, and then the peer culture, and then finally the work culture makes me who I am. And that's why I don't like the word trait. These are layers of the personality built by different cultural experiences rather than traits. And I think that emphasizes the social interaction as a source of so much. Of, exactly. You know, like, and the thing about that is, therefore, it can be the social action that is the solution or the re-catalyzing of, for instance, insiders calling out each other's insiderness in a loving way so that then we become more choiceful of how to partner across difference in a way that one of the reasons why some of our clients the wives of the white men send thank you notes to the company. They're like, we don't know what you did to my husband, but I don't want the old husband back. <laughs> he listens differently to our kids. He's more engaged and he's more in a heart level. And, and so there's this reclaiming of part of their humanity that they bring back to work. They bring back to their families and their kids. And I hear that stories all the time over the last 25 years. And it's, it's very heartening to do that. And so the it's what the caucus and as well as the two-day summits and other things we do, I think it creates a, a dialogue amongst people, peers, 
where you can actually start to gain status by being vulnerable and learning, being in humble inquiry, as opposed to you only gain status by being tough and show no chinks in the armor. Well, it reminds me that many companies do use company retreats, which means they kind of have a vague feeling that something important does go on when we get the team together, when we have lunch together. But I think what your people come to understand that may be the most important thing of all is that the real function of that retreat is not to do more effective work together, but to get to know each other better and that that's intrinsic rather than extrinsic. It's not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. I don't see anybody willing to say up front, the reason we have a retreat is because it's important for us as people to be there together. It's always because we'll figure out how to get the job done better. And that may be the most fatal flaw in the U.S. culture, this notion that relationships are a means to the end of success rather than an end in itself. Right. You see a, a lot of people's, the research of people on their deathbeds, they're talking about the relationships in their lives and that while yeah. that mattered, not what they accomplished. Yeah, exactly. And by then it's too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm quite pessimistic about getting this point across. And maybe in, in your four-day retreats, is that what you call them, retreats? Well, the, the learning labs are, are four days. There's the white men's group by themselves, and then there's the mixed-race gender sessions, and then there's the two-day sessions that are a bigger group, sometimes up to 80 people, that have a taste of all this as well. But you use the operational word learning labs. That's what they are. They're learning labs. Yes, yes. And that, to me, is a missing ingredient in a lot of U.S. organizations, they don't know how to create learning labs. Mm -hmm. And there's a zero tolerance policy for mistakes related to diversity of any kind. So people don't have a way to move from unconscious incompetence through consciousness of their incompetences and making mistakes and being messy without being penalized or actually being hauled off to HR. So there needs to be learning lab space. It doesn't need to be, by the way, four days, I've uh -huh. discovered. I tried an experiment at MIT with the Sloan Fellows, who are middle-level executives in their 30s, early 40s, and there's always a mixed racial situation and women in the group. What triggered this was that there are always seven Japanese in the group, and I observed the school was very proud of integrating these Japanese into the program. And I observed that this was happening socially, but not really at any kind of emotional level. The Japanese families and the Sloans kind of got together and blah, blah, blah. So I decided to try an across national racial experiment, volunteers about 35 Sloans, some of them brought their wives, 
uh, came and I said, tonight we're going to do something very different. We're going to explore across our national boundaries. First of all, are you willing to do some of that? They had been in the program six months, so I knew they knew each other well. Said, yeah, let's do that. So I said, okay, first step is to pair up. Pair up with someone from a different race or different nationality. And so they all got into pairs. And I said, now your task is in the next half hour to gather the courage to ask each other the questions about the other person's behavior that you never dared ask. <laughs> How would it go? It was magnificent. Uh-huh. It gave them just enough permission since they knew each other somewhat. And the most striking example was there was one African-American Sloan who had grown up as the son of a sharecropper in the deep south and was a very competent manager engineer. And a group of five or six asked me permission to, would it be okay if we work as a bigger group and work with him? We'll call him uh, Joe. I said, sure. I mean, this is open tonight. So they and Joe got together and said, Joe, can we ask you about what it was really like to grow up? And Joe said, sure. And they spent a magnificent hour getting to know Joe. But our normal society doesn't allow us to ask those questions. Uh -uh. And the Joes of the world are not about to volunteer it. And so cross-nationally, black-white, some people did the male-female. I never wrote much about this, but I think in a group that already has some degree of relationship, mm -hmm. you could go very rapidly yeah. into an evening like this, and it would be fabulous mm -hmm. to just give people permission to ask each other those questions. Right. Yeah, and then basically you hear each, each of the stories from people and you fall in love with them. Then it's hard to judge them. It's hard to make up assumptions about them because those kind of negative intent assumptions are also simple stories and they don't fit anymore with these other pieces that you know about somebody. A real good example happened with the Japanese. They would routinely be invited to dinner on Saturday and so-and-so, and the Japanese would say, sure. And then they didn't show up. Mm. And later in one of these more open contexts, the white guy would say to the Japanese, I did ask you to dinner. I, I'm curious why you didn't show up. And the Japanese would, in a tortured way, say, well, I didn't feel you had really asked me. You just created that possibility. I didn't hear a a time or a second invitation. So I thought you weren't really asking me. I thought you were just kidding. That was a shock to the Americans. Yeah, right. <laughs> that there was such a deep level of misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. But then I experienced it on a sabbatical in Geneva where I was teaching at the, at the local business school in Geneva. And my wife and I were anxious to get to know that community and we never got invited in the first month 
to any of the other families mm -hmm. in this school. And I asked the white American leader at one point, it was so bad that we, we left and I did my teaching flying in. We ended up going yeah. to Paris and London. He said what has probably happened is that over the years, Americans have come here and they get invited and we get to know them. And then at the end of the sabbatical, the Americans disappear and we never hear from them again. And we Europeans believe in a deeper friendship. And so we're not going to bother making superficial friendships with people, knowing that those people cannot be relied upon to be longer-range friends. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a bit of a shock to my wife and me, that we were perceived as unreliable, not long-range friends. Short term. So why bother to get to know us? And that comes a lot out of the culture we've been describing. Americans are superficial. We don't make deep friendships. Yeah, and I can think of, too, think of what you're talking about. I've moved from other parts of the country, and I'm not necessarily that good at staying connected to people. I move on, and that's what the Europeans were feeling. And worse, you as a white male may not consider it very important to be connected to people in the community where you only were six months. Or I might see it as transactional. Yeah, exactly. The, that process, which is really related to my task of living in that space for exactly. a long time. Yeah. And others would respond to that transactional front. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate the ground that we've covered. We talked about the different traits of, or not traits, <laughs> sorry for that word. I actually like that it's really about basic assumptions. I don't really like the trait word either. It's confusing. It's too individualistic. Yes, it's a reflection of that, of the culture. And I like discovering and talking about humble inquiry and the different levels of relationship. Is there anything else you want to share or leave us with? Well, I think I'd like to end on the note that where do we intervene if we think there are some weaknesses in this kind of a culture? Do we intervene by saying we've got to become more tolerant of ambiguity? Well, maybe. What my recent writing has led me to believe is that the place to intervene is to point out that transactional relationships no longer work and that robots will take them over anyway. That the only way to grow as a culture and to get work done that is very collaborative and very group-oriented is to learn to build those level two relationships at every level, across every boundary, discover that we not only feel better, but that the work gets done better. And I see this going on in lots of companies where you have people who have learned for themselves that they have to be more interpersonal. Probably your dilemma is they may learn that within the context of white male society. And Oh, sure, I have lots of good relationships with my buddies, but those buddies are all fellow white males. And whether we can extend that argument and say, well, 
that Muslim nurse in your OR maybe also needs to be a level two relationship. Uh You can't afford to be transactional with her because you won't trust each other. So the argument then becomes, well, how do we do that? And we do that by personizing, by getting to know people from other cultures, not just inside the U.S., but inside the U.S. we have all the other cultures. But we have to make more of an effort Uh to create those cultural islands where people can ask each other the questions they don't dare to ask. Uh Yeah, that seems really worthy to me. It's in some ways you're saying we need to make the case for why we should continue to exist as humans instead of everything being robots because we (laughs) we have the ability to be at a personalized level, at a head and heart level that for now. And that's what makes us humans. That's what makes us humans. It's our it's our advantage, perhaps competitive advantage if we leverage it to make a better humanity. Well, this has been very meaningful to me to have this conversation. So I hope it uh, was useful to you. And hopefully if people listen to some of this, they'll get some ideas out of it. It was great. It was wonderful to see you again, Ed, and to uh, get to connect multiple times over the last number of years and collaborate on our book chapter, which I believe is going to come out fall 2020 in the book Inclusive Leadership. So hopefully that'll see the light of day. Putting it down on paper is one step. Having a podcast like this is another step. Then having programs like what you're running is probably the most important necessary step so that people can begin to explore changes in themselves. It may not happen just from reading a book, but it's the first step. All right. All right. Thanks very much for doing this with me. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.